Yeah, it's nice. Feels like uh, Florida. But the issue is, the issue is that in the summer we would all be showing up in like coats if this was the weather. So, Mama, she goes to show what uh, you know what you surround yourself with. All right. So last week's parsha ended off as a cliffhanger. We are in the middle of this like wild story where the brothers are down in Mitzrayim and we have this uh, face-off between Yosef and Yehuda. There's this face-off happening. And this week's parsha begins uh, continuing on in that story. So Be'igash Elav Yehuda and Yehuda approached. He stood firm against Yosef. He was more than standing firm. He was coming full throttle. You know, sometimes you're playing defense, sometimes you're playing offense. So Yosef really put the brothers on defense, and now Yehuda is going on the offensive against Yosef. And according to some opinions, this is why we're called Jews, because of this week's Parsha and this part of the story where you'd say, why we should be called Klal Yisrael. We're from the 12 tribes, and we don't know which tribe we're part of. Why are we all called Judah? Every Jew is called Judah. It's interesting. Um, and he was demoted by the sale of Yosef. We know he said, okay, he was the Melech, he was the king, he was the strong one, but he was demoted. It's at this, it's the beginning of our Parsha that, Yos- that Yehuda is going to be reinstated really as the leader because when everything is, the whole world is crumbling uh, uh, around him and going against him, his Olam Haza and his Olam Haba are on the line because he promised his father, he made, he put himself into Cherem with his Olam Haza and his Olam Haba. If he doesn't follow through on this, and it was this approaching of Yosef that some commentators explain why each and every one of us is called after Yehuda. Because that's what it really, as we know, uh, the, uh, the uh, miracle of being a Yid is that we are, we are uh, eternal. And there's, if you're eternal, you're never going to be beaten. You're never going to uh, give up hope on this. So, Vayigash Elav Yehuda. Yehuda approaches Yosef without knowing who he is, and he says, Be Adoni, please, my master. He's speaking in a uh, refined way, and you can speak in a refined way. Don't get too angry. Yeah, it's like when somebody says, with all due respect, what do you know? They're about to disrespect you. And here he goes. He says, first of all, you are par. Yeah? With all due respect. Listen closely. He says, you are like paro. You are no different than uh, than Paro, which is both a honor and what we call a little uh, little shtup, a little what? This. A little this. Yeah, that's a better word. For it. Yeah, a little this. A little, right? You're like Paro. I, mean, I respect you like a king, okay? But you're like Kifaro. You're, you're like light. Also, like as far as your demeanor, you're not such a straight up guy. I'm I'm not uh, happy with the way that you're handling us. Adoni Shal. Now he goes through and rehashes the story. He rehashes. Uh, the story, and um, he tells him that we've got this elderly father, and this is the only son for him. His brother's dead. There's a whole conversation here, by the way, whether uh, Yehuda's telling Yosef, without knowing it's Yosef, that Benjamin's the only one left to his mother, and his brother died, and Yehuda doesn't know that Yosef's dead, really. He knows that they sold him. So there's really a lot of raid over here without getting too involved. Rashi, just who we stick with in general for the basic interpretation, Rashi says Yehuda knew he would, Yehuda lied. Rashi says Yehuda lied. Why did he lie? Says Rashi. He was afraid. And he allowed falsehood to escape from his mouth. Why? Amar, he said, 
If I would even give off a connotation that Binyamin's brother is alive, Yomar this guy is such a lowlife that he's going to tell me, oh, there's a brother, we'll find that brother too. So Yehuda was protecting himself by having this fellow, this second in command, uh, tell him, well, go out of your way and do whatever it takes to bring on Yosef. I don't know what the message is over here, other than Yehuda doesn't seem to be held accountable for this lie. That's all I know. We don't hold them accountable for this. And Rashi gives a, possibly a, a valid reason as to why he was allowed to lie, we'll call it, under these circumstances, because of the potential of further danger. The Meshechachma argues. Meshechachma argues on Rashi. And he says that Yehuda never intentionally lied. Yes, it's a lie. He said his brother's dead. And Yosef knows he's alive. Meshechachma says that Yosef really thought that Yosef was dead. Yehuda thought Yosef was dead. Because he, in his own mind, had determined that otherwise it didn't make any sense to him that over the last 22 years, um, if Yosef was alive, there's no way he wouldn't have contacted Yaakov. But he, they had put on the prohibition. They had put on the prohibition, which explains Yitzchak and explains everybody else. But Yehuda didn't know that Yosef was going to follow this. He didn't know that, according to the Meshachach. That's a great question. Um, ultimately... The Bali Tosvos, Tosvos on the Gemara, who are Rashi's grandchildren, they defend Rashi with what Rebetz and Shu just said. And they say that, no, our Zaydi Rashi is correct, because you tell me Yosef knew everything else, else about the sale, and he never went to Yaakov at all, even after Yaakov's going to come down to Egypt in this week's Parsha. And the, the commentators tell us, and this is wild, that from the time that Yaakov came down to Egypt and had this meeting with Yosef, Yosef never went to visit him. You'd think, now they're like, they're back, right? They were chabrusas and they're back. Yosef never went to visit Yaakov. He sent Ephraim and Menashe to learn with Yaakov. He never went to Goshen. And the reason for this is, out of concern, he said, my dad suffered enough by missing me for 22 years. If I ever offer him the opportunity to ask me about what happened... He'll lose, instead of losing one child for 22 years, he'll lose 11 children for eternity. He may be upset at my brothers, and therefore Yosef never put himself into a situation where Yaakov can even ask him about what happened. He's like, if he finds out, he ever finds out. But according to some of Farshim, Yaakov went to his grave really not fully knowing the story. He, he, never, he never had the opportunity. It's very, very interesting. But ultimately, the Bali Taisvis say what you're saying, and they say that no, if Yosef knew so much about what Yaakov went through, and about uh, what the brothers did, which is which makes a lot of sense because if he if you're going to say he never knew about the cherem, then he certainly had ample time since he's been second in command. Just go tell your father, like you know the guy, you know your dad's suffering. Go tell him. So the the way that they explain that is no, there was a cherem. Well, if there's a cherem, so then the, the same thing would hold true, and which is why the Meshachachma argues on Rashi. Afternoon, which is why the Meshachacha argues on Rashi and says that Yehuda really thought that um, that Yosef was dead and he did not intentionally uh, he did not intentionally lie. Okay. So yeah. I'm not sure where I. The question here that's being asked is that there there is a medrash. There's a medrash that tells us that the Ksonas Pasim, the colorful garment that Yaakov gave Yosef, was part of the history that Esau used to have. And, uh, and this is how, <coughs> so stemming from Adam Arishan, he was able to, to oversee all the animals. 
So how is it possible? So the answer that I saw given to this, it's not a strong answer. I think the question is better than the answer, is that even this medrash which articulates that it was a, um, uh, a jacket or a coat that had these powers, it wasn't automatic. You still have to go and kill the animals. So um, there was still a possibility. But along with that, there are commentators that explain what, that this is one of the things that bothered <coughs> Yaakov in ever accepting that Yosef was dead. And that was part of his, his um, issue that, that stayed in his mind is Yosef had the Ksonas Pasim, it had been, it is helpful, and now you're coming with this claim. It's part of the, uh, call it the weakness of the brother's claim. Um, but it seems, it's, what, what you could say then is, so why didn't they blame something else? The brothers knew this too. Everybody right. knew this. Okay. <coughs> Apparently it just wasn't 100%, um, but, but that's a, it's a, it's a good thought, and it's discussed in the, uh, in the, in the commentators. Okay. So, Yehuda goes through the whole thing, and he explains why the tsara of Yaakov, and Yaakov already lost this child, and now with Binyam, there's going to be more tsaras. Fine. So ultimately, once Yosef hears this whole rundown about his dad, he breaks down. He breaks down and he says, Ad Khan, you know, I can't kafa Aleph. Until now, you know, that's it. Like I'm done with the first of the Hakafas, right? We're we're moving on. And he um, and he, he's not gonna withhold the information. He needs to bring joy and gladness and, and shlameless completion back to the family. So what happens? So says the Pasuk, who now in Perak Memhei, chapter 45, verse 1, V'lo yachol Yosef lehis apik. And Yosef could no longer lehis apik, he could no longer endure l'chol hanitzavim alav, with everybody who was standing in front of him, v'yikra, so he called out, hotziu kol ishmei alay, everybody out of the room, everybody out of here. V'lo amad ito, and there was nobody who was with him, v'hisvada, when he made it known, Yosef, El Echav to his brothers. So in the room was Yosef and his brothers, which by the way was life threatening for Yosef. This was a light Yosef really put himself into a life threatening situation by being alone without any protection in the room against the brothers. The brothers were no weaklings. Yehuda, <laughs> if you go through the Midrashim about what Yehuda looked like in his opening conversation in the Parsha, we, we would have like like collapsed just out of fear. Just fear. These, the, the Shvatim were very, very, very powerful men. And even though Yosef also had his own power, without any protection around him, he really um, was uh, setting himself up and putting himself in a real dangerous situation, which we'll, foco- we'll focus on shortly. But he sends everybody out of the room. And he raised his voice in crying. Okay. He was weeping. It's interesting to note why he was weeping. doesn't say. Interesting. We, we cry for various reasons. There's various reasons why, why uh, people cry, um, as, as we know. Vayishmu Mitzrayim, and Mitzrayim heard. Vayishma Beis Paro, and Paro's house heard. Now, Yomer Yosef, oh, he sent them out of the room, but what it means is, the word Shema means they're going to understand about, you know, ultimately that this family is coming together. Verse 3, He says five words. All he says is, I am Yosef, 
Ha'od Avichai, is my father still alive? A lot of questions on this. They've been talking about his father for a long time. And this has been the back and forth. And this is why he has to reveal himself. What's going on here? You know, it's, uh, so we'll touch on that as well. And they couldn't answer him. Okay, very interesting expression, which Bezosh will focus on as well. Behola is, they were in a, um, they were, the, the, their minds were in an uproar. Miponov from his face. Okay. Doesn't say Kinavhalu Mimenu. They were like, you know, shocked by him. It says they were very, they were in bilble. They were like thrown out of whack. Miponov because of his face. Okay. So let's discuss, and this is going to take us probably throughout this year, Yosef's revelation and what, uh, what we're learning out as we go through each verse. So what is it that the interesting the, what Yosef couldn't stand what what would you think if you read the, read these words in verse one and Yosef could no longer endure what like not telling his secret not knowing his father's whether his father's alive okay but they've been telling him yeah. his father's alive the separation right between his the separation in the room he wanted to already come together with them. Okay, and it's interesting if you keep reading the next couple words. It says, "And Yosef couldn't handle; he couldn't endure lechol anitzavim a love." Everybody who was around him, referring to the Egyptians, so he sends them out of the room. It seems from the the verse one of the primary issues that Yosef now is having is that there's like intruders in the room. It's not. It's not. There's like there's the wrong people around him. It's the wrong people. There are certain settings. I think this is very important. Very, it's very, very chashev. There are, you know, you talk about, um, and it is, and oftentimes the, the word transparency is, uh, is a big deal. It's, when I say that word, it reminds me of Southwest Airlines, right? Yeah, which gets a big laugh this week uh, because, you know, when I, when I was a kid, one of my friend's parents, whenever we would fly, so Southwest when I was a kid in Europe, right, a long time. So I used to fly southwest. I lived on Yeshiva Lane. So when there was an off shop, is where am I supposed to go? Home? I went home every 15 minutes. So Baruch Hashem for Southwest Airlines, $29 nonstop to Cleveland. And I had four guys in my class from Cleveland. So I used to go, you know. And their thing was transparency. Southwest Airlines is transparency. They're very, they're very open about their fares. They don't charge the, the extra fees and whatever. And now try saying about the transparency Southwest Airlines this week. They're having a tough time, right? But the transparency in general is a good, and sometimes it's a terrible thing. There's there certain information that it's, it's, some people, they should not have that information. <clears throat> Besides for not being their business, it would be terrible for them to know the inner workings. I mean, because they're just going to get involved and mess it up. And you can't have everybody. There's certain people, they, like, if they're in... If they're in the right place at the wrong time, it's like Ive. Ive. Like what whatever you you're out to accomplish is, you know, is you're gonna have a much harder time pulling it through. And Yosef needs the proper setting for this important piece of information. And to give over something crucial and important that's gonna have further ramifications, you need to make sure you have the right people with you. You have the right people with you. Now, here we're dealing with a family. 
But this really, again, it's Torah. So it transfers to our personal lives and to certain settings and situations. Sometimes we try to bring people into a conversation and we might regret it later. Like, okay, like, we would have been better off otherwise. It's not knock or whatever. It's a reality to, to be able to accomplish and get things done. He couldn't endure, say the, comment, say the Mepharshim, the commentators explained that he knew to have other people in the room, as we're going to get onto embarrassment as well soon, but it, it wouldn't, it, it would be the wrong setting for them. And it would be wrong for them. It'd be wrong for them to be there. They don't belong. They don't belong there. It's, it's partially, it's wrong. It's not, they don't belong. And therefore, it, it bothered him. He couldn't endure that. He didn't have the right set. He created the right setting, uh, the right setting around him. Okay. Now, Rashi says that one of the reasons why he couldn't endure it is because, Shahiyu Mitzvah Nitzavah, my love, he couldn't bear that there would be mitzvah in front of him. And hear that his brothers were embarrassed when he made himself known. I believe these words in Rashi are so beautiful. Rashi doesn't say when, when Yosef embarrassed them. Yosef never embarrassed them. Yosef couldn't bear that by saying his five words, no embarrassment. All he, all he says is, I am Yosef, is my father alive. He never knocked them. He never gave them musr. You know what I'm saying? He just stated the, he, he stated the reality. But that reality would turn into an embarrassing situation for them. Because now it's going to lead to the broader story. So a couple things that when I was learning this Pasuk with my father, Zechariah Levracha, he would point out a couple things that Tara is teaching us when it comes to our speech and embarrassing others. Number one is Yosef had no intention of embarrassing them. But Yosef revealing to them he was, ju- he was bringing his family together. But the fact of the matter of him saying, I am Yosef, my father alive, still, it was a reality in the situation, and still he made sure that it was a setting that others wouldn't be embarrassed. So we'd say, don't embarrass others. Don't say anything embarrassing. It's more than that. The is letting us know, not only don't say anything embarrassing, think about a standard sentence or phrase. Is that ultimately, it's not an embarrassing thing at all. Is that ultimately going to embarrass somebody else? Or not? Just a statement. I'm not even trying to embarrass. The Torah is demanding of us that even if it's a reality of the situation and somebody's going to feel embarrassed, you're obligated to protect them from additional embarrassment. Number two is, they're going to be embarrassed anyway. The brothers felt embarrassed. But that's coming from them. Correct. Not from what... Correct. But it's his achrayas to make sure that when the embarrassment's coming on their own end, to make sure the mitzvah are out of the room. to protect them from additional, uh, from additional embarrassment. And that's the second point my father made, is that first of all, you see embarrassment could come about and be an issue when I'm not even the one doing it. It's coming on their end. And number two is, even when there's going to be embarrassment, you're still obligated to protect the person from additional embarrassment. You'd be like, oh, they're embarrassed anyway. They were embarrassed. So what's the difference? The answer is, okay, additional embarrassment makes a, makes a difference. And my father was pointing out that a person who's on a, a, a person who lives a life of Tyra, and is on a um, and is trying to live at an elevated level of ruchnius. We need to be concerned about all levels of kavod, all levels of uh, honor from another human being. And if if not, it's an expression of arrogance. It's an expression of of um, uh, b- even being willing to to elevate a a embarrassment. And it, one of the things my father shared with me on this, and I may have shared this this uh, previously, is that he he told me that Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg. Uh, Rabbi Noach Weinberg's brother He was the Roshiva in Eri Yisrael I'll tell you a good story with Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg and my father My father um, 
came to Baltimore from Lakewood Yeshiva. He was learned by Rav Aaron Cutler. And Rav Yaakov Weinberg called Rav Aaron Cutler to ask him if he has um, somebody in Yeshiva who could teach 12th grade. 12th grade, looking for a, a senior Rebbe. So Rav, Yaakov, so Rav Aaron Cutler sent my father um, to uh, try it out. And my father got there. And Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg told him, he, sh- he sent him into the 10th grade classroom. 10th grade classrooms. My father gave shear to 10th grade Gemara. And there was what they called a prabha. Like a tryout. Tryout, see if he's good, you know. Uh, my father had already been turned down from a 5th grade position in Lakewood, Betzal Hebrew uh, Day School, uh, a few months before. And my parents, they, they didn't have anything. Um... That my, my father left yeshiva and tried to, well, that's a, take us a while. We left yeshiva. <laughs> my father came home one Friday and my mother, he, and my mother just told him, she said, Yossi, we don't, we, we don't have money for challah. We just don't have challah for Shabbos. So my father said, okay, fine. So that's, uh, now I'm obligated to make a shtadlis. So I have to go earn a living. So I went to Ravar and Cutler. Ravar and Cutler said, okay, so Betzal Hebrew Day School is looking for a fifth grade rebbe. And you should try out. So my father went to try out, and they said, no, you, whatever, you're not good. So he went back, and Rav Arnkala said, hey, you made your established, now sit down. You're, you know, ah. Until it comes again. And then a few months later, um, they survived however they got by, but it was like surviving. A few months later, Rav Yaakov called Rav and he said, you know, maybe you have somebody for a 12th grade position in Yisrael in Baltimore. And Rav sent my father to try for the 12th grade. So my father gets down there, and Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg sends him into the 10th grade classroom. And my father teaches for one day, two days, and there's nobody there. Just a bunch of rowdy 10th graders. My father's teaching for two days. And he's like, this place is nuts. Like, this place is, you know, dysfunctional. <laughs> you know, it's a, I thought I'm coming to teach 12th grade. And he was supposed to be there for three days to, to try it out. After his second uh, day of teaching Gemara, so my father walked out of the classroom. And Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg was standing outside the classroom. And he says, you're hired. For the 12th grade position, you can go get your family. Okay, go get your family. We want you to start as soon as possible. So my father said, what's up? You know, he said, how do you not say? He's teaching me the greatness of Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg. Tell me the greatness. He, who he just met for the first time. Um, my father was... Don't remember how old at the time. No. Don't remember what time. He was young. They were... Um, he was young. I don't know if I'm getting the ages exactly. He's probably around 30. Around 30. Got mar- he was, got married when he was 25. And they were, they were in Lakewood for about five years or so. Um, so he said, Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg told him, he said, nobody's in the room. I had no to hire me. So he said that the reason why I put you in 10th grade, he said, I know it's very stressful to teach in front of people and to try out. Um, he says, I put you in 10th grade because my office is the floor above the 10th grade classroom, and I can hear you through the vents. <laughs> I didn't want to sit in the classroom. I felt it'd be too much pressure. He's like, I sat in my office. I listened to you teach. This way, you'd just be, you, could, you could be yourself in the classroom and do your thing. He's like, yeah, I'm happy. Let's go get your family. That was, that was his... Uh, so he didn't want... He get, you know, he did... Uh, um, so my father shared me. We learned this puzzle. He said that Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg... Um, was very makbid, which means he was very careful that the boys in Ner Yisrael, when he was Rashiva, play sports in a way that stresses, it sh- in a way that it stresses your success as opposed to the opposition's weakness. For example, he was very against tackle football. 
very he Rabbi Yaakov Rafael, tackle football is a terrible sport. You watch the, you watch football now. Half the game is a showman sport. It's not how good I am. It's that you're a loser. It's how hard I hit you. And if I got you good, oof, we're gonna dance. We're gonna do. We're gonna do. It's all. It's all about how much I could smush the other guy's nose in the ground. So Yaakov Amrugo said, "Sports play to win, but any type of activity which stresses the the opponent's weakness, where it's like an enjoyment to hit hard, it's an enjoyment." He says, "That's you know, that's it's against the tire. It's it's not it's not the Torah way. It's a Torah way to win. True, you can win. You play hard. You do it right. Because they win at anything. It could be sports. It could be uh, business. It could be whatever. But to do things in a way where it's where it's like who who do you realize the person laying on the floor?" The, the person who just lost, do you, you keep their dignity as well? Yosef went out of his way as much as possible, as much as possible to ensure, the, uh, to, ensure to keep as much possible the dignity of the brothers. So my father said, he says, to me, he says then he asked me a question. He says, okay, he says, Menachem, so what am I telling you that you learned from here? You got to, don't embarrass somebody else, right? Don't embarrass. He says, but the tyrant's not redundant. I already know you're not going to embarrass somebody from the story of Yehuda and Tamar. Tamar was willing to give up her life to not embarrass somebody else. So why does the why does the tyrant need to give us this story when you have such an extreme where I have a woman who's willing to give up her life to not embarrass uh, somebody else? So my father shared me as follows. This is uh, this was a classic his way of of reading through something and understanding. He pointed to Rashi, and Rashi says, if you look, that what couldn't Yosef endure? The words of Rashi are the first Rashi in chapter 45. It says, Lo haya yachol lispo, which means he, Yosef couldn't bear having them potentially embarrassed. By Tamar and Yehuda, the whole situation was an embarrassing situation. This whole situation was embarrassing. Over here, he was just going to utter five words. So from Tamar, you learn the extremity of not embarrassing somebody. And from Yosef, we have this additional idea where even if you're going to be stating five words and you're not saying anything embarrassing and you're not creating even an embarrassing uh, setting per se, other than the mere mention of a few words, Yosef still, the Torah teaching us, he had the sensitivity of soul that despite what everybody's doing to him and despite everything the brothers did, this still demands of us to uh, to not cause any um, any potential pain. Rav, Rav Pam would tell over a story about Revisor Zalman Meltzer. Revisor Zalman Meltzer is a great, uh, great Godel in Eretz Yisrael. He's the father-in-law of Rebaran Cutler. Rebaran Cutler married Revisor Zalman Meltzer's daughter. And there's a story that Rav Pam would say over with Revisor Zalman. There was a young boy who went to take an entrance exam in Revisor Zalman Meltzer's yeshiva. And he made a mistake in the Gemara. He was reading the Gemara and he made a mistake. So Revisor Zalman corrected him. And this ninth grade... 14-year-old is a teenager. So Rizalma corrected him. So he says to Rizalma, he says, no, you're wrong. He says, you're wrong. He says, this is, and I, he says, no. He, like, he, he, he insists that he's right. He remains stubborn in his mistaken chat in the Gemara. He, he, he put the comma in the wrong place or whatever it was. Okay? And the Gadaladar is trying to show him how to really read the Gemara. And this kid, you know, this kid, he's a true, true to the way Hashem made him. And um, in the middle of the it wasn't like the kid didn't understand. See, some people ask questions because they want to understand. Other people ask questions because they want to show you you're wrong. So this boy was showing Rav Zalman that he's wrong. In the middle of the conversation, Rav Zalman stands up with a smile and he starts to walk around 
the Bismedrish. She starts to walk around. And there were guys who saw like this exchange going on and they heard the Rashiva muttering to himself as he was walking around the base Madrish, make sure, which means, make sure the honor of your friend is as beloved to you as your own. Which means he was reminding himself, yeah, you have a kid here, but it's not a yid. I have to make sure that I keep, you know, I'm sure it was frustrating. <laughs> it's like, I'm just trying to tell you what the Gemara is saying. No, you're wrong, you know. But he, he was makbid, you know, to, he did as much as he can. There's another story with the stipler, with Rukhan Kanievsky's father. At a kid's bar mitzvah, he walked on Shabbos. He wasn't a youngster. He walked on Shabbos to ask, to, and he walked into the bar mitzvah, and one of the, um, and he shows up to the kiddush, and he says something to the boy. The boy smiled, and he walked out, and they asked the boy what happened, and he said that when he was younger, Rav Isser Zalman Meltzer once reprimanded him for making noise in shul. And he told Ravisar Zalman that it wasn't him, it was one of his friends. So Ravisar Zalman at this kid's bar mitzvah came over to ask him mechila, because now that he's a gadol, he wants to ask him mechila for, for being choshed b'kshirim, for you know, asking him to be quiet when really it wasn't him, it was a friend. He says, until your bar mitzvah, you know, you're too young to forgive me, but now, you know, he's coming, he's coming, he's being careful about, about um, his, uh, his, uh, the, this, Young boys uh, covered. Okay, let's keep going. So um, what happens is that the the pasuk says he, Yosef says Ani Yosef which is which should be bother us with the question. What do you mean Odavichai? He knows his father's alive. So Rav Pesach Kron brings down a beautiful story where um, there was a young boy in school, about fifth or sixth grade. And the Rebbe told over a pshat in this Gemara, and this boy uh, had a, came from a very difficult uh, uh, upbringing, a broken, a broken home situation. Um, the father had run off, and the, the um, Rebbe asked the question on this Pasuk. And the Rebbe said, why is Yosef asking if his father's alive if the brother just told him the father's alive? Okay? All the boys said it's a good question. They didn't know the answer. This kid, this kid in the back of the room is wild. He raises his hand. He says, Rabbi, I know. I know. This kid apparently never raised his hand to answer in class. And the Rabbi's like, okay, Baruch Hashem. This kid's getting involved. And he says, and spoke a lot about his situation, obviously. It's a very moving response. He says, Yosef knew his father was alive. But he, Yosef wanted to know, is my father alive? Does he still feel like a father to me? I've been separated for 22 years. You've been telling me about Yaakov. Does he still care about me? That's Ha'od Avi. The focus is my, my parent, my dad. Does, is, is my dad alive or is it your dad who's alive? Is he, is he, still, uh, is he still connected to me? And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful answer. It's a beautiful answer. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's a question that we ask in ourselves whether or not we have parents who are alive in this world. But it's important when it comes to relationships um, I certainly struggle with this, and everybody's got different ways that they uh, are able and, and work on getting involved in relationships. But sometimes, you know, we think to, I think one of the things that I know personally I, I need to work on and try to work on, and people don't uh, hold me accountable enough for this, so it's hard to know how much to do. But sometimes you know you care about somebody and you, you want to be there for somebody as much as you can, 
maybe they're thinking like, does that person still care about me? Like, you know, like sometimes we try to show somebody we care about and we're not really showing it properly. This is something for us on the, on the giving end. And on the giving end, there's a, just to explain, to articulate this idea, there's a beautiful parable given of a lazy man. There's a lazy man. And he's so hungry and so this, he's got everything. And one day he's out in the forest and he sees a fox with broken legs. The fox is laying there and he's like, hello, it's a forest. This fox is dead. Done. There's beers, there's everything, everything out there. And he's watching this fox. And before he knows it, a beer comes with a big piece of meat in its mouth. Big piece of meat. And this guy's like, oh boy, it's about, to, it's about to get ugly. Yeah. And the beer walks over to this fox that cannot walk and um, places the meat in front of the fox and walks away. Feeds the fox. And this guy's like, he says, God, you take care of a fox, you can't take care of me. I'm starving, I'm there. So he goes, to, he goes to a guru, he goes to a sage, he goes to a wise man. And he says, why is it, why is it that God takes care of the fox with broken legs, but me with my broken spirit, I can't, I can't even be taken care of like the fox. And the wise person says to him, he says, Maybe God's plan is for you to be the beer. You want to be the fox. You want to be on the receiving end. He says, why don't you work on being the beer? Yeah, start with that. Start with being on the giving end. Just doing what you can. Whatever you have. You don't have the finances to so give, your, give your, a little bit of your time. Give it that. Start with being the beer and then come back to me soon to ask what it means. You know, if God could take care of you like a fox. Now it's true. We do have struggles. And this is not, this, there's a, it's a parable. It's a story. Um, and there's times where, yeah, we... You know, we're in a, uh, we need to be in a situation where we're being helped. We also have to realize to be in a situation where we're able to, uh, we're able to help others. And this is all connected with Ha'oda Vichai is are people thinking about us, whether we're still interested in, you know, being in, in their lives as well. Are we showing it enough? Sometimes we do show it enough and sometimes we don't. But, you know, it, it's, important to, uh, it's important to try our best in this way. Now, one, one more thought on this Pasuk is it says, they were mivobal mipanav, from his face. It says they were like disconcerted from his face, which is the end of Pasuk Gimel, end of verse 3. What's the whole idea of his face? Why didn't they recognize him till now? This is a question that always, you know, it's like, you know, so perhaps I, the best answer I've seen, for me, everybody's going to have, you know, I think we all connect different answers. And I, again, maybe I connect this, I've seen it in my personal life, is if God doesn't want you to see, you're not going to see. That's the end of the story. I mean, you, there, there are so many things where, you know, something's right in front of me. And I'm telling you, I tried. I really did. I, like, I completely tried. This happens all the time in my house. My wife doesn't believe me that I tried. But I'm telling you, I looked. Find something, can you find that from the fridge? And I'm opening the fridge. I'm like moving stuff around, pulling stuff out. It's not, I, it's not there. It's, it's not, I'm telling you it wasn't there. And she's like, it's there. She's like, another side of the house. It's there. I'm like, hon, it's not here. And she walks over and she's like, it's right here. And she pulls out, here you go. You can, next time, make sure to look. <laughs> you know, like, make sure to look. And you know what the answer is? Everybody has a chazak of being blind. Until HaKadosh Baruch Hu lets us see. 
If I got this broccoli, you know, as long as you legitimately try. You know, sometimes maybe I'm lazy about it. Okay, it didn't look good enough. Maybe I didn't move enough things. Um, but Kinevalu uh, Miponov, I mean, to me, the, you know, the answer that I think the most, from, again, talks to me the most is because HaKadosh Baruch Hu didn't want them to, to notice it. And the reason why it's a, it's a very strong question, what kept Yosef going in Egypt? That he looked exactly like his father. As I don't get, like he looked exactly like his father. No, but he left in the seventeen. Was about to say the Torah tells he grew a beard. Hey, Yaakov probably had a beard too. <laughs> so now he looks more like his dad. You know what I mean? Like, what's up? Because he wore a crown. Now, like, like what happened? I, 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 it, it's got to be for me again. I don't know for me, and it's not my own answer. But there's some of the Farshim say God, the reason why the solstice was able to happen. They were blind. They just, Akadosh Baruch Hu did not want it to enter their minds to, to be able to uh, understand the, the story. Now, you want to get a little bit into Allah, and this is where I want to, we'll, we'll end with this idea, and it, it leads to a very interesting discussion. I really, this is another answer. Again, maybe I'll talk to some of you more than it's, you know, than the, the, the answer that I personally connect with more. But it does bring out a very uh, important halacha. So here we go. There's a sefer called uh, uh, Shlema Chadasha, which asked this question, and he explains with a Gemara, which is the Shulchan Aruch Paskins Halacha Lamais. The Gemara Megillah on twenty-eight A Chavches Amar says, "You're not allowed to look at the image and the face of a wicked person. You're not supposed to stare at a face of Hitler." Or a person who's a Russia, a person who's a real, e- e- even alive. A person who's alive, they're a bad person. You're not supposed to look at their face. You're not supposed to stare at them. The Magan Avram, in Simen Rosh, uh, Reish Chavhei, in Shohan Aruch, Paskins Lahalach, he says, Asr Listaka B'fnei Adam Russia. You're not allowed to gaze at the face of a person who's wicked. Um, he says, Perhaps it means not to look them in the eye. The eye is an entrance to the soul. Okay? Ulam, but just to see an image, ain't iser beriya ba'alma the Magen Avram happens the paskin that if you see an image, it's not forbidden, but you should, shouldn't gaze into their eyes if they're if they're um, actually there. Okay, but it, it is something. It is alacha to be uh, to know that if wherever if there's ever images of either something forbidden or something that or a person that does rishus that does wickedness. It's really, uh, uh, it would be wise for a person to, uh, to, not, uh, to not look at them. So to bring this around to the answer, we'll share a, a quick incident with the Maral Diskin, the Rav and Brisk, that there were enlightened Jews that were trying to make life miserable for him because he would challenge them at every corner that they, that they turned to. And they made up a, uh, a story that, the Rav of Brisk, the Maral Diskin, was a, a Ganov, and he stole something from something else, and they ultimately, they had him thrown into prison. It's not, it's not a new story. It's not a new story. Anybody who's been affiliated with Chabad knows why every day is a Yomtev, because there's another Rebbe who got out of jail. It's like, it's incredible. You know, they, they have a joke about a, a Chabad Balchuva who, um, 
whenever the mother would call up, she's like, son, you know, you know, how you doing? He says, ma, today is an incredible day. The Mittler Rebbe got out of prison. And then she calls him back a week later. He says, ma, today is, we didn't say Tachron because the fear the Rebbe got it. You know, and this, at a certain point, she's like, son, I, like, I don't mind this whole observant thing. I'm just getting worried who you're hanging around. You know, like, <laughs> like who? Like, this, this, like, what's going on here? So it's not, an, it's, it's not new. They had these tzaddikim, they had these tzaddikim where uh, he was thrown into prison. And the, the people in, in, in his uh, city, obviously, were uh, doing whatever they can. They got a top-notch attorney to, uh, to represent him. Um, this was Biyasa Berussia, was in Russia. Okay? And they, they hired a top-notch Jewish attorney who was, who was Yehudi Mummer. He himself was completely, he was an atheist. Okay? They hired an, a, a Jewish atheist to represent the Maral Diskin. And it came time for the judge, he came to court, and the Maral Diskin uh, uh, showed up to the, I'm um, sorry, the attorney came to talk, this attorney's an atheist, okay? He came to, comes to talk to, to, in prison to Maral Diskin. Maral Diskin is talking to him and he's looking down. He's looking down and he says, why don't you look at me? He says, because you don't believe in God. I don't stare into the eyes of people who don't believe in God, so I'm not looking at you. He says, but I'm representing you. He says, doesn't matter. He says, I'm not impacting myself by looking into your neshama. That's what the man says. Fine. They come to court and the, um, the, the Maral Diskin is there. And the prosecution states their case. And the defense attorney, this atheist Jew, uh, gets up and he says to the judge, he says, Your Honor, I, I want to talk to you about who, my, uh, you know, who, who I'm representing here. Um, th- this guy knows his life is in my hands. He knows I represent him. And if he's not successful in this case, he's going right back into the slammer. And even so, when I showed up to this prison, he wouldn't look at me because his law commands him and tells him not to look into the eyes of somebody who he feels is, a, is anti-God. Let me ask you something, he says to the judge. He says, you think this guy's going to steal? Right? <laughs> this, this, this guy, he's like, this guy's got a code of Jewish law here. Right? He says, the guy doesn't look at me. You think he's going to steal? The guy, he, took the, he took the argument. The judge took the argument. On the case, he'd be like, oh, the sugar, what's, what's Maral Diskin doing? Right? But he, he, uh, he um, you know, what's right is right. And, and uh, he, was, he was very mocked, but he was very careful about, about this, uh, about uh, this halacha. So some, some of them explained, and this is the other answer, why they didn't notice him. Because he was second in command to Paro and he wasn't treating them well, they just simply weren't looking at his face. They, were, they wouldn't look him in the eye to really see what Yosef was. This is the other, other answer some people give. Until Yosef reveals himself, see it says, what happens? This is beautiful. So they couldn't answer him. They were in Bilbo from what? Mipana, from his face. They never saw his face till then. As soon as he says, I'm Yosef, if I live, they looked up, they look him in the eyes, they're like, oh my goodness. Because until then they had Allah. You don't look into the face, you don't look into the eyes. So that's another answer uh, that's given. Again, personally, I connect more with the first answer, but it is uh, a fascinating, um, a fascinating halacha 
to, uh, to know. We'll hold it here. I'll just end with one more uh, very nice story that's connected to this with the Maral Diskin. It's not connected to the message of looking into the eyes of Russia, but they say over a, uh, a story during the First World War, there was a yeshiva bachar that was uh, um, accused of being a spy. And the Chafetz Chaim uh, went to the court to testify on this, on this uh, young Jewish boy's uh, behalf to point out that he's not a spy. And before the Chafetz Chaim gets up to speak, the defense attorney for the boy tells the judge, he says, I just want to tell you before the rabbi talks, I want to tell you who the rabbi is. I want to tell you who the rabbi is. He says, one time, the rabbi, and apparently the defense attorney had heard this story, he says, this rabbi, the Chafetz Chaim, Rabbi Saul Meir Kagan, was in a train station, and somebody came and grabbed his coat and started running away. And the, he says, and the, this sage started running after him and he would say, and he said to him, keep the coat, I'm sure you need it. I'm Michael you, I'm Michael you. I don't want you to suffer. Just go, take it, yeah? And he says, you should just know the, the man who's about to testify is he's quite, he's quite a righteous, quite a righteous fellow. So the judge says, I don't know whether to believe this, uh, this story or not. But I'll tell you what, you know, they don't say those stories about me and you, he says to the attorney. <laughs> At least if they say stories like this about the person, <laughs> you know, uh, we know that he's, uh, he's uh, in good shape, you know. So that's uh, another, sometimes, you, you know, you've, uh, every story you hear, do you know every last detail to be true? No, but there's good messages in it. And, you know, they don't say these stories about, <laughs> about uh, simple people. So that's another, you know, nice mice with the Chavaz All right, we'll hold it here. Any uh, questions, thoughts? Yeah, go ahead. Heard once about Joseph's face that that he was made up or dressed in the style of the Egyptians, mm-hmm. uh, but and there was like to his credit that externally, I mean he to fit it that he looked Egyptian, but internally nothing ever changed for him. But, you know he was, he said I'm good. Yosef. It's a good answer. It's a good answer. Yosef. Yeah, Linda saying this is classic Yosef from the time that he's seventeen. He's he's all about the he's all about the panemius. He's all about the the Going through uh, the safer from Rabbi Ram Ben Arambam, who I've been quoting a lot more recently, as I've been I have a chavrusa now in it on on Wednesdays. Rabbi Ram Ben Arambam, he just you know it's it's a simple thing, but the way he says it to me hit home the other week, and he says that a, a person's obligated to see others the way Hashem sees people. He says as opposed to seeing people outside in, we're obligated to see people inside out. That's his. That's what he said. And then he like moves on, and I was like, I was like, well, let me think about that. Let me think about that. I got a as opposed to seeing people. Yosef was he was a person who you had to see inside out, just like you're saying. If you would see him on the external, already he's a nar, right? He was younger. He was in there. He was a type of person, and you know, externally maybe he he looked differently, and they you know, maybe that's part of what they never saw in him initially. It's a good part. It's a nice idea. They they couldn't see his depth initially, and it's continuing into the story. Of not noticing his greatness and who he truly is now either. Very nice. Yeah. This may be a little simple, but I've always accepted it because it's just impossible. Like they would not expect Joseph to be that. Even if they looked at him and said, Wow, you look just like Joseph, they would right. be like, But you can't be because you're the second. Impossible. Instrument. Yeah, you know. Right? It's impossible. It's like when you don't expect something, if it's in the wrong place, like you just you don't Absolutely. see it. Absolutely. True. Know? 
True. Yeah, something that's too wild. It's like, never happened. Right, yeah. Never happened. It's not there. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. It's just an anecdote. In your defense, my son is told over that women are gatherers and men are hunters. If it's not moving, they don't see it. <laughs> I hear you. One of one of my buddies uh, told me he says uh, g- going on your theme of uh, women are gatherers and men are hunters. He says, if you ever want to get your wife's attention, sit on the couch and take out your phone. <laughs> She'll come over in a minute. She'll be right there, trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> You're sitting still. <laughs> going on <laughs> all right all right yes you're good everybody